0: Yes. To wait, it wait yeah. okay. And like I said, there's a bunch of stuff that's free, and then there's stuff you have to pay for. And the stuff you have to pay for varies wildly in cost depending. <clears> on <throat> on okay, put, folks, let's go ahead and get started. We have one other that's supposed to be here tonight, and four others who will not be here tonight, but tell me they are going to be here as part of the course. So, got a pretty good group. Appreciate y'all being here. Um, You are here for the advanced parenting class, right? (laughs) That's what everybody's here for? Just just a regular, old, everyday parenting class. (laughs) Takes me back to my days when I was in Kansas, uh, before I went back to the local church 30 years ago, I did about 15 guest speaking uh, slots a week, and usually on about eight different subjects ranging from Bible to all sorts of family topics because it was for the Family Support Center. So I never quite knew, you know, I would just show up and I'd have about eight things I could do and I'd be staring at the people trying to figure out, all right, what am I talking about tonight? You- <laughs> <laughs> yes, I just, how many of you want to hear this? How many of you want to hear this? Just, we'll go with consensus. But tonight, that is not how it is. Tonight we are beginning a study that will last six weeks Um, tonight and then five Tuesdays through August and uh, that will take us up to Labor Day but not beyond and so for six weeks we're going to be looking at the first three chapters of the Revelation of John Um, we'll talk about why the first three chapters in just a minute Um, I am recording this I looked for the recorder that you're so used to seeing me fumble with and I can't find it it's supposed to be on my desk but it's not so I'm recording this on my phone, and Lord willing, tonight or tomorrow, I will be able to download it and have it uploaded. Um, but we'll see. Yes, thank you for laughing at me. I appreciate that. I always, always like it when people just, you know. No, that was laughing. That was laughing. <laughs> that Snicker was is chocolate, peanuts, and caramel. <laughs> I, I know. Okay, so welcome to you guys and welcome to those of you who are listening online, including uh, four or five of you who have contacted me. um, And you know who you are, so if you haven't contacted me and you would like to receive study guides, then you need to contact me because you won't (laughs) if you don't. Um, I will be sending the study guides henceforth to the 12 of you who are here and the four of you who contacted me by email, and that's it. So anybody else needs to Let me know. All right? All right then. We need to pray. Clearly, we need to pray. You go ahead and drink. Some people pray better hydrated. So, you know, there we go. Uh, The air conditioners are on. So, all right. Father, thank you for bringing us together. Thank you for your word and for allowing us to hear how you've interacted with people like us before and to benefit, Lord, from their lives from their experiences and from you interacting with them. So tonight, we pray that you would give us wisdom as we dive into the revelation, help us to understand what it is we're reading, how to read it, how to understand it, and then in the, in the coming weeks, Lord, to be able to hear the words that you have for the churches and to, uh, to integrate them into our own lives. We do thank you for those who are not here as well and pray that you would be with those who are traveling and uh, just keep them safe and bring them back to us, uh, allowing us, Lord, to reunite and study together again in Jesus name. Amen. So <clears throat> I am going to pass the sign up around uh, as I scan you. see I'm all of a sudden I'm electronic. I'm scanning you, picking up all of your little RFI things. Um, I know everybody in here, I do not necessarily know what email address you may or may not want me to use in order to send you uh, electronic copies of the handouts and so forth, and any notices of change of schedule, which might happen. There's none planned, but we all know how that whole plan thing works out sometimes. So if you would, please sign in, and even if I've got your email, just to let me know This is the one I want you to use. Would you please print legibly your email? Because when you write your email, both I and my computer get confused. And that makes it less likely that we will actually send you anything. So if you would do that, pass it around, I'd appreciate it. Um, This is the first of six, as I've said a little bit ago. And so if you look on the board, The title of this is Jesus' Letters to the Churches. This is not a class on the Revelation of John because we're only going to go through the first three chapters in this six weeks. If there's enough interest, it is possible, we'll see, that I may pick it up and carry the Revelation through. Um, But a number of you, as I'm looking at you, probably half of you have been through that study with me in the last five years. So I try not to just repeat the same thing over and over. Uh, so we'll talk about that in about five weeks as to whether we take a break for Labor Day and then pick up on the other side with uh, the rest of this letter or move on to another thing. Uh, so Revelation chapters one, 1 through 3 is the main thing we're going to talk about. Today is the introduction and I will give you a schedule. Um I know I've got it there it is everything I'm giving you tonight I will email you either tonight or tomorrow um, so that those of you who prefer electronic copies will have them and if you've been in one of my classes before you know that this schedule should be considered tentative until after the final date and once the final date is over we probably won't make any changes But, you know, that's probable. So, it is the seven churches, and tonight we're going to be looking at an introduction to the Revelation of John, as well as the first chapter. How many of you have ever studied the Revelation before? Okay. How many of you have picked up, by the way, what I'm calling it? The Revelation. How many are there? One. One. Okay. I always get confused with the little tiny words of of John, to John. Of of John. Now, of John could be it is from John, or it could be it's made up of John. We're simply revealing John to you. That's all grammar. But in this case, John wrote it. So when you say from John, you're saying that because of the writing of the book. Correct. Because that's what we're studying. God scripture written by John. Yes, I am not denying the inspiration, okay. <laughs> I affirm that heartily, but, but God never breathed it onto a page and let it just form, you know, it's not Harry so it's all, yes, we don't talk about that here, it's all through a human agency, and in this case it's John. Right, and when we actually read that, we'll explain why it says that. Because it was revealed to John. Correct. Correct. So why don't we call it the revelation of Jesus? If you wish to, feel free. I'm simply going with roughly 2,000 years of tradition. Because you know how I tend to just go along with what everybody says. Yes. That is my bent. Humph. Humph, I say to you. Is this what it's going to be like? Is that what it's going to be like? I hear it. All right. Now, the rest of the the, uh, five weeks, you'll notice there's three of them where we're looking at one church each, and two of them where we're looking at two, and that makes it fit. But there's seven churches, we're going to see that again and again, even in the introduction. And so next week, and I do have a study guide for that, I did not put one out because I wasn't sure who's was going to be here, but I have one for you to take home to prepare for next week. And uh, that will be for the, the letter that Jesus wrote to Ephesus. Now, I'm pretty sure everybody in this room has been through one of the classes that I teach, and I'm not changing in any substantive way my style. Um, if you think I need to, please talk to me afterwards, but otherwise I'm, gonna, I'm just going to go through this. I will say to you, there's a few things that are tip-offs that you're not really doing the work. So, for example, when I say, do you have any questions, and everybody starts real quick trying to read the study guide, um, because if you've got questions, you're going to come up with that while you're doing the study. And if you don't do the study, I'm not going to tell you not to come, but I am going to tell you you are literally going to miss out on at least half of what you can learn here. Literally, at least half. So if you're just coming for what we do in the class and not doing the study guides on your own, or at least trying, honestly, I'm hoping you can't answer every question fully. I, I try to gauge the questions in such a way that it stretches you a bit, uh, but not blows you out of the water. So if you can answer all of them fully and no problem, then you probably ought to tell me that because I need to perhaps toughen up the questions a little bit, okay? And there's words that I'm going to ask you to look up. You're all familiar with the process of that. If you do not know how to look up a word or you've forgotten how to do that or you want to look at more resources, please talk to me. But what I'm going to be doing frequently is saying, are there any of the words that were very important to you, you'd like to share or that you want questions about? You should know that by the time you come in, because you've done this study. So if you're if you're like, you're looking at all of these and as though it's the first time, it's not going to help you much, okay? Because I'm going to skip half of them probably, unless you tell me, yeah, that was important to me, or I don't get. Even if you got the word, you looked it up, you know what it is, and you're saying to yourself, all right, so why did he put... That one in there. Bring it up because every week I'm going to start off with what questions do you want me to address and there's reasons for every one of those words to be there. I do not just put them there to fill up a quota of words and so if, you, if you're not seeing a good reason for it being there we probably ought to visit that so let me know. I will also, unlike the uh, study guides I do for Sunday mornings, Uh, They have little discussion starters, and then they have the study part, and then they have the taking it home, which is the application part. Um, This is a a bit deeper. I'm expecting more out of you than the average person who does that study guide. Um, and, And frankly, I already know all of you can do that, so that's a reasonable expectation. But we do need to be asking constantly, so what? So this is what it says and this is what it means. Now, Lord, what am I to do with this? So if you're not seeing that, then when you get to that last question that says, what questions would you add? Then I recommend that you add the so what, okay? But please do read the questions first because numerous of them have tucked so what into the question. So I'm not separating it to, there's a whole application section because hopefully what we do is we get used to the idea that we apply the whole thing. Does that make sense? Okay, so as we get started, are there any questions that you might already have about the Revelation of John, or if you've read ahead about chapter one? If you, if you didn't read ahead, that's fine, this is the first class, but if you have and you've got questions, that's what we're covering tonight. So, anybody? yes so me, or yes supply in general, or yes or? both and okay. when I when I re- respond or when I bring up so what I'm referring to uh, something that I've taught many times and I know some of you have heard this that there's three questions that if you answer them you know you studied the word what does it say mm-hmm. okay that's objective what does it say what does it mean that is also objective this is not what does it mean to me who cares Honestly. And that's not sarcastic. It is the Word of God. It is not about us, or at least not only about us. On the other hand, absolutely it applies to us, both corporately, and that's the, in general. So one of the questions we ought to be asking is, you know, okay, as a body, what does it say, especially when what we're studying is Jesus' own words to specific churches, by churches, I mean congregations. Not the body of Christ as a whole, but just the ones next week in Ephesus. And so he's narrowing it down. We can learn from that or we can make the same mistakes that they do. And as you read through it you'll find it's pretty easy to make every mistake they all made um, or to be faithful and follow in everything that they were praised for. Then It comes down to, so what, meaning, what do you want me specifically to do? James says, let's be not just hearers of the word, but doers of the word, which, by the way, could easily be translated practitioners or practicers of the word, and I I like that because it it carries a little added meaning that is true to the word pia'o, which is What's used there, and that is that this isn't just you do it, it's done. Because we all know when we're responding to the word, it's not you do it, it's done. It's okay, you make that part of your life. But the way you make that part of your life may be different than the way I make it part of mine because your life is different than mine. So it's going to be this, the same general principle, but the particular applications need to be. Explicit enough that we can walk out of here and begin to practice it each one of us So honestly if, if you have a night where you're sitting there looking at that and saying I just don't get how this applies to me at all I'm going to walk out of here and have no idea how to practice this. Please bring that up Because that means I'm not doing a, a good enough job zeroing in on that section And you're giving me feedback that will help me do that Okay all right now Let's talk about the the letter to John for a little bit. Um, I have here another handout. Isn't it amazing? I just have handout after handout. This one is called an introduction to the revelation of John. Um, I will own that it is actually part of a New Testament survey class that I taught some time ago. So those of you who were part of that class, you may actually have this floating around somewhere course, I could have changed part of it, too. So, yes, it is called The Revelation of John. What it is never called is Revelations. I actually watched a game show uh, about a month ago, because I do that, and a, a guy lost like $10,000 because he answered Revelations, and uh, I believe it was Jeopardy, actually, and... And Alex says, no, <laughs> it is not Revelations. It is the Revelation. So there is no book in the Bible called Revelations. It doesn't exist. Okay. If you persist in calling it that, it will be like the proverbial chalk on a blackboard to me. So if you really want to get under my skin, then go ahead, because I have to forgive you anyway. But please don't do that, because it really bothers me. Okay, the background. It is written by John. Which John? Okay, the Apostle John. What do we know about him? He was an apostle. What's that word mean, by the way? Pardon? Sorry. Oh, okay. Hold that thought, because that is something we need. What? Okay, he was chosen by God, but that's not what it means. Apostolos. What is it? What? The sent one. Now, that feels a little awkward in American. So, how about missionary? Because it means one who's given a commission, and a literal translation of that is missionary. What we think of in the old context of missionaries who go out and spread the gospel in areas where it's never been heard that's what the apostles did there were large a and small a apostles in other words there were there were many 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 hundreds of people doing that but there were 12 of them the 11 and yes i do tend to discount matthias so if you want to argue about matthias we'll do that another time but there were the 11 left after judas and then there was paul explicitly chosen by jesus and they were given a level of authority that was much different than anybody else. I would say, by the way, that was also one time. In other words, I do not believe that exists today. There are, there are several what are called apostolic movements today claiming that level of authority. I ran into that again yesterday, in fact. Um, no. <laughs> Sorry, just don't buy it. Um, John... Was now what you say? The one whom Jesus loved. Whom Jesus loved. Who wrote that? John, John, John did. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I'm going to go with it because the Spirit did guide him in this, but it is interesting that he's the one who described himself that way. Um, but if you read the rest of the Gospels, Gospels not Gopels, you will find that John was one of Jesus, for want of a better term, inner circle. Anybody remember the other two? Peter and Peter and James. James. James, who was John's brother? Okay. So you got Peter and then you got these two brothers. And Jesus, uh, Jesus spent time with 120. He spent time with mobs. He spent times with 70. He spent time with 12. He spent time with three. Okay. So it was like a a telescoping and the the smaller the group, the more intimate, the more intense. So for example, Peter, James and John were the ones he took with him to Gethsemane. And what did they do? They all fell asleep on him. But still, he honored them and honored their friendship by choosing them to go and keep watch with him in that extraordinarily intense time of prayer. What else do we know about John? Can you remember anything else from Scripture? Um, Either the youngest or with James. Youngest. We don't really know which one. Um, Well, and he definitely was the longest living. So by the time this document is being written, he is the only living of the 12. In fact, most of them, died 30 to 40 years before this. He, he was the only one who died natural death. Uh, that's a tradition. tradition. We do not know if that's true. Um, that it is believed, particularly by the Roman Church, that that is true. We actually do not know how numerous of the apostles died. Okay. But, and, and we don't know how John died. So he may well have been killed. We, d- we don't have a record of his death. Um, and then there's a number of others we, we again we simply don't have a record of them, but the Roman church taught that he was the only one who died a, a natural death and so that tended to get kind of perpetuated and and picked up as church tradition so it could be but we really don't know. What else do we know? You wrote one of the Gospels in, you know okay, so he actually wrote five different documents that are part of what we call the New Testament the gospel that bears his name and 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John letters, Uh, 2nd and 3rd being almost fragmentary, extremely short. Um, And there are themes that go throughout those five documents, Um, particularly the four, because there's obviously something very different about this one that we'll address in just a minute. But uh, the other four, and they're written in extremely... Uh, and I'm going to use this term in a grammatically inappropriate way, extremely kine Greek, which means common. In other words, John was a Galilean fisherman. He didn't even speak Greek, to the best of our knowledge, until after the fall of Jerusalem when he was forced away. And that was minimum of a decade, possibly two before this. So by this time he's living in ephesus which is a greek dominated city in uh, asia minor Um, he's in he's in exile when he wrote this but his home was in ephesus and um, he wrote as somebody who he wasn't a scholar compare his writings to for example luke's who was a, a trained physician or paul who was a scholar and there it's the difference between reading Uh, Reader's Digest and a Doctoral Dissertation. And so for those of us who are uh, studying Greek, we pretty much always start with John because it's just a lot simpler and easier to deal with. John was, he had a nickname, other than the the, the nickname he gave himself as the disciple Jesus loved, but he had another one. Son Son of Thunder, Aramaic Boanerges. Um, He was actually one of two because his brother got the same nickname. And does anybody remember why? Yeah, most notably the lightning part. Um, They're headed south to Jerusalem and Samaria doesn't want them. By the way, the Samaritans were much more hospitable when they were moving away from Jerusalem do what you want with that, but that was a very normal thing for them because um, both ethnically and religiously they really, uh, to put it mildly, disliked one another. So when they were setting their face to Jerusalem and heading that direction they sought shelter and they were denied it. And John, full of faith, one cannot question his faith, turns to Jesus whom he knows to have the power and says, Lord, you want us to call down lightning and have them destroyed? You know he's all excited about it and James doing the same thing and so they got the nickname Sons of Thunder for that John had another nickname before he died um, that he was known as uh, he's he's more known as this now does anybody know that name pardon no that was actually James the brother of Jesus But no, this was one that we don't have any real evidence that he was called this at this time, but he was called this fairly soon after, and it had to do with the content of what he wrote. Uh, Close. The other way around. The Apostle of Love. Not that he was beloved, because now we're back to I'm the one Jesus loved. But because he taught so clearly and so consistently that the mark of a follower of Jesus is love. The word, by the way, agape, pretty much, well, in his teaching entirely. And I find that really fascinating from a guy who was called the son of thunder because he wanted to... Show his faith by destroying and killing thousands of people. Mm-hmm. People change. And it was pretty cool yeah. that God changed him. So the purpose was to show what must shortly take place. We're going to see that in a minute in one. As an encouragement to Christians under persecution. Um, the date, we're probably talking, and I don't think the date is even on here, is it? Well, shame on me. We're probably talking the end of the first century. So I've seen anywhere from 95 to 100 AD. And honestly, it's a bit silly to try to narrow it any more than that because of the difference in calendars anyway. But it is in all likelihood, and believed to be this by 2,000 years of Christian teachers, the last of the New Testament documents. It was written during a time of persecution, particularly that which was being instigated and enforced by an emperor named Domitian. Now, to to put that in context, this is 30 to 35 years after another emperor named Nero killed Peter and Paul. So we're talking a lifetime later. And this is one of the reasons why um, there was a tradition that John would never die, because he was an extremely old man at this time. Excuse me. During this persecution, John, being the last living apostle, was known as pretty much the leader of the church. There was no authoritarian hierarchy. There was no such thing as a bishop of anybody except in the sense that bishop meant overseer, elder, uh, shepherd and then there were groups of them over each congregation. So he was the last Apostle. He was the last one with the authority of having been explicitly sent out, to use that term, by Jesus himself and given authority by Jesus himself in order to do what needed to be done. Um, He was not the last, but maybe the last, and we don't know in terms of the apostolic power and the various signs and wonders that uh, that were performed, for want of a better term. Uh, in order to point to the veracity of what they were teaching. Um, John was one of those guys who could do things like that. God had given him the capacity, for example, to not pray that somebody would be healed, particularly for a certain amount of money, but to walk up to somebody who couldn't walk and never could, grab their hand and yank them up, and the guy walks away. That was the kind of thing John had. And so you, you can imagine the impact that this man had Domitian was not an idiot. Domitian knew that he would create a martyr in the modern sense of the word, meaning somebody who died and everybody rallies around them as a as a uh, rallying point, as a as a motivating point. If he simply killed John, because he certainly had the ability to do that. John was an expatriate Jew, and the reason he was expatriate is because the Romans. Destroyed Judea. So it was certainly not that they liked them a lot and were afraid to hurt their feelings. But, Domitian did not want that kind of martyr. He didn't want that kind of stiffness reinforcing the faith of the church. So instead what he did is he simply got him out of the way and sent him to an island called Patmos. Uh, Patmos still exists today, we know where it is, always, it's always been there, it's one of, those, one of the few places where if you go to the Middle East today in the so-called Holy Land, and they say this is where such and such happened, it actually is, because <laughs> usually if they say this is where this happened, you pretty well know that's the one place in this entire continent that did not happen, because it's the tourist industry making this stuff up. Patmos is Patmos, Just like Crete is Crete. It's never changed. So he was sent in exile on Patmos, and uh, he was not free to leave the island. If he tried to leave the island, he would have been stopped because it was an enforced exile. You're an apostle. You were sent to establish the church. You are the last one. And you have this shepherd's heart. And you have the body that you know of all across the Roman world suffering at the hands of the Romans because of their faith, explicitly because of their faith. The one thing they had to do in order to get out of the suffering is sacrifice to Caesar. As soon as they did that, denied Christ as the only Lord, they're clear. They simply had to deny their faith. Because if they didn't, Caesar could not count on their loyalty to what was called the imperial cult. It was, I know I can count on you because you are devoted to me and you worship me. And that's how the emperors, particularly in the first century, tended to operate. So they were persecuted. John wants to, certainly not stop the persecution, he can't do that, but encourage them. How do you do that? If John wrote them a letter that was designed to be taken from Patmos, taken to the mainland, passed around all of the churches of Asia Minor, and then passed over to Greece, and passed over to Rome, and then passed to North Africa, and passed over back to Israel itself, and said, God is on his throne. Domitian is temporary. Domitian has no authority God does not give him. Domitian has already lost. God has already won. So you hang in and be faithful, and you will be joint heirs with Jesus himself, heirs to the kingdom of God. What do you suppose the Roman guards are going to do yeah, there's no way in the world he's there to keep him quiet. They're not going to let that happen. So, what John did instead is he wrote a letter, um, and the first part of it is letter form, but very quickly it takes on, obviously, an entirely different tone, an entirely different shape. And as we read it, we look at it and we're, we're flabbergasted. It's like, what? Because it's extraordinarily symbolic. It relies extremely heavily on numerology. Everybody know what numerology is? Assigning mystic or um, other value to numerical quantities. For example, seven. What is seven? Completion, perfection. Okay? And this is pretty much universal, by the way. <clears throat> I don't know of a culture, there's cultures all over the world that practice numerology, and I don't know of one of them that says seven is terrible, horrible, awful, or an evil sign. By the way, if you can never quite make it to seven, to completion, what would that be? Incomplete. It would be incomplete, perpetually, eternally Incomplete. So, those of you from your mathematical reservoirs, what would be never quite able to make it to seven? Yeah, point six 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 six, or two thirds, Mm -hmm. because when you put it in the decimal form, it never stops. Mm -hmm. It is always incomplete. So that became the opposite of seven, and known as the sign for evil, for destruction because it was eternally incomplete. Now, this this style of literature is what is known as apocalyptic literature. Uh, It comes from the Greek word for to reveal. And it was a Jewish form. There is indeed a Hebrew word for the style of literature, and I do not pretend to know that word. So I'm going to stay with the apocalyptic one because that's how it's referred to today um, and because I know the word. So this actually was a Hebrew literary art form. dates back for centuries. In fact, it was really as an art form kind of going into disuse, partially because as a nation they were in disuse. They didn't have a nation anymore. The Romans had obliterated Judea and Israel, and people fled all over the world. So the old traditions that held them together as a people began to go away, and this is one of them. But it was recent enough that it was known not only to the Jews, but because it appears in a number of the books of the Old Testament to the Gentiles as well, who had studied the scriptures that they had, which was the Old Testament it was highly symbolic it was not literal and by the way just in case anybody's gonna go there do not tell me you take the Bible literally because you do not I know this because none of you have empty eye sockets you know where I'm going with that did Jesus not say if your eye causes you to sin Pluck it out. Now that's literal, if it's all literal. And yet, there is no record of any of the apostles going around with eye patches on only one eye. But I guarantee you every one of them was tempted by something they saw. A person, a thing, food, whatever. And I guarantee you every one of us has been as well. In fact, I'm going to go out on a limb and say every one of us, I suspect them to, has actually given in to that temptation at some time and sinned because of what we see and we want. And yet here we all are. There's 13 of us in the room and there's 26 eyes. Also, too, like when you say how many times shall I forgive him?" Seven times, no, seven times 70. It's not literally, okay, seven times 70. It's right. You have, you know, it's right. I don't know anybody that thinks on the 491st one you go ahead and knock your head off. Yeah. Well actually I know some people who think that, but they're wrong. Okay. So no, we don't take everything literally and this is a literary form that was explicitly symbolic. So the question becomes symbolic of what? And as we study it through, if you try to figure out exactly what every single item was intended to represent. I was actually uh, disfellowshipped by a young woman in college during the first class I ever took on the Revelation of John, because, uh, and this was back in 1974, anybody know what was going on around here in 1974? Well, America. Uh, Well, I can't either. Jesus movement and that's where we both had come from oh, and very 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 literal with the revelation of John by the way we <coughs> we basically saw Hal Lindsay as the 13th apostle so yeah you remember <laughs> yes you just dated yourself <laughs> laugh at me <coughs> I'm not going to repeat it because he laughed at me but this woman made the, the statement that Hal Lindsay makes, I believe is in the late great planet Earth. If you don't know those, then uh, you are blessed. But, I mean, they were just that ubiquitous back then. But she said the locusts, referring to a plague that shows up later, were the Huey helicopters in Vietnam. And I said, I have my doubts that the revelation of John explicitly refers to Huey helicopters in Vietnam and nothing else with that symbol. Mm -hmm. And she said, I mean, literally turned to me and said, you are no longer my brother. And it's like, (laughs) okay. I just, no, I actually, I don't think I ever said anything. I just stared at her. I was a, I I had just finished my freshman year Mm -hmm. of college. I was technically a sophomore. It was my first class in my sophomore year because it was a summer class. And, and I'm just looking at her like, what? But that's how strongly people can hold on to these interpretations. Okay? Now, in this section, we're not going to get into the heavily apocalyptic part of the book. But if we do go into it, before you say, please, let's study that, let me just tell you right off. That's where I'm coming from. And by the way, that's where the vast majority of the church has, has come from for 2,000 years. It's Basically only the last 150 years that people started going weird on, uh, and by the way, you're thinking of Kissinger I was who was 666. Six, six, our, our church history professor proved that Kissinger couldn't have been because using the same formula that, I don't remember who came up with the formula, but that whoever that was used proved that it was the academic dean of our college who was the antichrist. (laughs) And just to throw another kink in there, if you read the scripture carefully, you'll find there's not just one antichrist. Oh well. Okay, so I say that only because we need to understand the nature of this book, all right? Mm -hmm. But what we're going to be looking at for the first three chapters is much more direct and less symbolic. It is. It is a little indirect in that he never singles out the Romans because the letter's not going to get through if he does. Okay. But we're going to hear some very clear messages. All right. There's an outline there, some notable passages. I'm going to skip over them. Uh, Well, no, I'm going to briefly go. The term Alpha and Omega, we're going to see that tonight. Uh, The seven churches is what we're going to see for the rest of our study this six weeks. The 666 shows up in the 13th chapter. Babylon the Great. Have you ever heard of that? Yeah, that was not a compliment. (laughs) Uh, Babylon was great. Symbolically, it was, by the way, it, it didn't exist then. The Babylonian Empire was like three empires ago in terms of being conquered hundreds of years. But it had been so great that as a historic symbol Everybody still understood it, particularly Jews, because Babylon was not only the empire that conquered the Persians, which was the empire that conquered Judea, but the empire that sent them back to rebuild the temple. No, the other way around, Babylon conquered them and then held them and then, When the Persians conquered Babylon, they were sent back. So Babylon figured very, very heavily in the history of of the Jews. Um, The millennium, the thousand year reign, chapter 20. Um, Today, views on the revelation typically revolve around how people see that particular Item. I want to say figure of speech because I think it is a figure of speech, but then that sort of betrays where I come from. And again, I've been disfellowshipped by people who say, if you don't think there's a literal thousand year reign on the earth, then you can't be Christian. And my only response to that is, well, then Jesus must be excommunicated because he's the one that said, my kingdom is not of this world. And I've never found anybody yet who could bring those two statements and rectify them. So, thousand year reign on the earth, what is that about? It has great meaning, but it is central to this letter, to the revelation. The new heaven and the earth. The the existence of a new heaven and earth is not figurative. We know this because of Jesus' own teaching in passages where clearly he was not being uh, metaphoric, he was being very direct, but the descriptions of them are, and I will come back and say this, any description of heaven and any description of hell is metaphoric. They're both beyond our grasp. So heaven is basically, think of the best thing you can possibly imagine, and it's better than that. And hell is, think of the worst thing you could possibly imagine, and it's, and I'll say, way worse than that. So there, anybody who says, I get hell, I understand. No, you don't. And if you think you've been through hell on earth, you better hope you never have to experience the real thing. So we can say, because you say the new heaven and earth, so the new earth is heaven as we know it? Well, that's not what this says. It says the new heaven and earth. So I, I'm going to stay with my words, because that's actually a quote. And no, I don't believe the scripture ever teaches that heaven per se, that earth becomes heaven. But then we have to go back and look at what heaven actually is, and that's a whole other study that I'm not going to go into. So I'm going to leave you with that look on your face. Somebody should have taken a picture of that, by the way. Well. <laughs> well, I didn't say I was going to answer them. And then warning against adding or subtracting is interesting. The very last passage of this um, says anybody who adds or takes away from this book is cursed. Okay. Which, again, was an extremely common thing to do in an apocalyptic book. Okay. Um, the Revelation is the last book of the New Testament. And so many people take that as a statement about what happens to the entire Bible. Now, I wouldn't argue that when you try to take away or add to Scripture, you're playing with fire. You're talking about God's Word, and you're usurping the authority of God, and that cannot end well for you. But that passage isn't saying that. That passage was about this book, this letter, because what we know as the New Testament didn't exist. It had not been assembled yet. At that time, so we've got to remember we we have a tendency to read ourselves back two thousand years and assume everything then was for us and about us, and it, that's just not true. Yes, you're saying that was primarily for Revelations itself. For what? To not take away. For for what? Revelation. <laughs> the revelation. There you gone. go. For the revelation. No, I'm saying it is period for the revelation. Because that's what it's in. That's the book it was written in. Um, the, the assembly of, of the books was something done years and, years and years and years and years and years later by Christians. And there was different orders. This just happens to be the one we ended up with. And we have absolutely no evidence anywhere that the Holy Spirit cares. What order? Now, what's in it, of, of course. But, I mean, the Revelation could be the first book. Um, I, I believe, by the way, the Revelation is at the end, and I think this can be documented, because it is known to be the most recent, the the, the newest of them. So we know that was the last one written, so it gets the last place. But other than that, it, it's somewhat arbitrary. So yeah, that's what I would say. Okay, um, there's a number of approaches to the Revelation of John. I'm I'm not going to, for time, space, go into all of them. I'll leave you to look at those. But if you really want to talk about them further, well, next week I'll start with what, you know, what questions do you have. And who knows, I may actually respond to it. <laughs> it's possible. Okay, so now we see if I can reaccess my... Oh, look at that, it came back up. Revelation, chapter 1, verse 1. And I'm reading out of the NASB, just for consistency and because I want to. So uh, if you're reading out of a different translation and something significant, significantly different is there, feel free to pop your hand up and say, wait, what's that about? Um, What? Well, actually, the, the title in the Greek is simply the word revelation mm-hmm. singular not plural but just not the just revelation so if we really want to zero in on it we just pull away actually and then this one says revelation of John this this greek text but don't believe that's in all the text yeah okay So, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Whoa, somebody already pointed that out. So, what we're doing is revealing Jesus. Okay? Everybody understands that, right? So, it's of John because he's the one who receives this revelation and then passes it on to the church, which is extremely uh, understandable because he's the last apostle, which God gave him to show to his bondservants, Anybody remember that word? Mm-hmm. Those of you who've been in other classes? What is the word? Doulons. Okay, Dulos, what does it mean? Slave. It can mean slave bondservant. or bondservant. And on honestly, which one it is depends on whether you're reading something written by a Gentile or a Jew. <laughs> because the Jewish heritage was you cannot have slaves as the Romans did. They had rights, they had legal status and you got them for seven years and then you let them go no matter how you got them. Whereas the Romans, the Greeks, their practice of slavery is more what we tend to think of as slavery, which is basically they owned that person period. There were no rights. There was no status. The status was that of property. Um, it was not by the way racial ever. Uh, you could be Roman as citizen, Have the citizenship stripped from you for various crimes and then be sold into slavery. And it did happen. So it wasn't about ever about ethnicity or race, it was about power. Okay. But in this case, in bond slave, it was about service. And a bond slave who is permanently, because a bond slave could go past that seven years. How did that happen? Anybody remember? Yeah, but why would they pierce their ear? Because they want to be there. It was, it was voluntary. So when Paul, for example, refers to himself as a bond slave, he's, he's in essence saying, okay, I gave myself to him as a, as a servant. I mean, he didn't have the literal hole punch that the rest of them did. But he's claiming that status. And, and anybody who gives themselves to serve the Lord uh, we're, we're not kidnapped. We're not forced into it. We're given a choice. And that makes being a bond slave very important. And so this became the way that people saw themselves with regard to Jesus. So God gave him to show to his bond servants the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bond servant John, who testified to the word of God, and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, because the time is near. Okay, so there's your your introduction, generally, where John writes, this is what happens, he refers to himself in the third person, which pretty much... I think was universal for his writings. I'm trying to remember if he ever did that first person. I cannot think of a time he referred to himself first person. Uh, there are some fun words in here, fun things. Um, in verse three, for example, he who reads, and the word read means uh, to get knowledge on top of. And that, that's what they that's what they used as the word for actually reading something. So it's back to that UNESCO, the word that we've been talking about on Sunday morning, but there's a different prefix on it, and that's how we get knowledge, is by reading. But also hearing, and, and we're not talking about some people have a reading disability, so they use CDs instead, or they have a podcast and listen to the word. To hear was not simply audibly take it in it was to pay attention to it so I can read it and ignore it or I can read it and hear it and if I hear it that means I'm I'm listening to it I'm paying attention to it I'm going to respond to it and heed the things were written in it and the word heed is actually the word for obey to keep literally to guard So you've got this that God himself has given you, now you guard it in your heart so that nobody can take it away and it will always be in your heart and, and therefore you can be driven by it. I am, whenever I hear that, I am brought back to a passage, I believe it's out of Isaiah, it's quoted in Hebrews, where the Hebrew writer says that in the resurrection he will put his words in our mind and write his law in our hearts. Mm-hmm. Think about that. It, it means it's, it's instinctive. It actually starts with no one will, will teach anymore. Their brother about God. This gets done away. Don't know what I'm going to do. I think it has to do with hurting grizzly bears. It, it's a well, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's about hurting grizzly bears. <laughs> I've just got that feeling because it goes back to that whole carekeeper thing, caretaker thing. But none of us will need this anymore because the, the word will be in our hearts. So here we're hearing it. He's telling us, make it like that. Put that in your heart. Then he moves to what the NASB actually captions as the message to the seven churches. John. Now notice, John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Stop. How many churches were in Asia Minor at this time? Anybody want to guess? more than seven <laughs> absolutely uh, now what was a church the worship, place of worship. never a place no, no. ever a what uh, more than two it was more than two well, i suppose it could be two technically it could be one although i don't think there's any reference to that somebody said people definitely people mm-hmm. what else yeah. well yes but that's not the definition of the church simply referring to what's going to happen if you do that okay literally those who are called out but on top of that those who responded to the call because Paul comes out and announces the gospel and calls everybody out and a whole bunch of them stayed but those who came out of the world and gave themselves to the Lord ek Kaleo ek out Kaleo to call that's the verb form. And the noun is? No, you, you just said the Greek word. Ekklesia. Everybody here has heard that word, ekklesia? Because mm-hmm. it's, it's one of the Greek words that we throw around a lot. Um, we even use it to, just, to, to talk about things that have to do with churches. Ecclesiastical. Okay? And that's what it's about. Because ekklesia is that group of people called out. So technically, if only one person responded to the gospel, they would be the ecclesia. But I don't know that that ever happened. Sometimes it was three or four. Sometimes it was thousands. Doesn't matter. The church was those in a given location. This is small C, by the way. Capital C Church is everybody everywhere that is ecclesia. But when it says the church in a specific place, as we're about to see referred to, then it's those... Who were called out in that place in that time you did not have separate congregations it was not about a building ever they had buildings by the way I I hear this all the time it's hilarious you know it was hundreds of years before people met in buildings really what exactly was the temple what was that upper room what about that place in Ephesus that they rented where uh, Eutychus fell out of the Window bored to death. What's definition of, you know. Houses, what's definition of room well, <laughs> there, there were buildings. Yeah, there was always, from the very beginning, buildings. Uh, the church in some places was four or five people, and, and in other places, the very beginning was tens of thousands of people. Mm. But it was never churches. It was the church in Jerusalem. It was the church in Ephesus. It was the church in Laodicea. The church in Colossae there's only one group of people called out in that place. And even though they weren't perfectly united, they were not fragmented the way we see it today. Um, Something we probably should be very, at least grieving about, if not ashamed of. So when we talk about the churches in Asia, why does he say the seven churches? And by the way, what's Asia? Why is what we call Turkey called Asia? And by the way, Turkey has nothing to do with a big bird. (laughs) Just so you know. (laughs) Yeah, the Roman name for what we call Turkey, and it actually wasn't exactly that, but it encompassed all of that, was Asia Minor. And then it became truncated as Asia. Everybody understood when he said Asia, that's what he's talking about. So he's referring to a Roman province. Now when he did that, he says to the seven churches there. Why, if there's more than seven, does he say to the seven churches? What's that about? Seven is a number of completion. Okay, seven is, we would call it a round number, except in our system it's not. Um, but it is, yeah, it's it's like, This is to the church, period. So when I'm talking to specific churches, but I want that understood, this goes for everybody, then seven would be the number. Seven geographical regions? Um, Yeah, except, honestly, we read that back into it. You'll see that in a lot of books written in the 20th century or 19th century. Mm -hmm. That is not what they were thinking there, because they didn't see it as seven different geographical regions. So we, we, we have ways of trying to make that fit our modern Western mindset. And the reality is they weren't modern Western people. Yeah. Seven is completion. It's the churches. Yeah. And, but, but see, the reason he says seven instead of all the churches is he is going to single some out as examples. And by the way, when I say he, Who? Well, John writes it. Yeah. It's not John's letters to the churches. It's Jesus to the churches. So, you know, John's the mediator. But th- this is coming from the Lord. Is it possible to, that he's thinking it's more, not, I mean, seven is a conclusion, but also in naming specific churches, that it's more likely that that letter will get out? because Possibly. will be mitigated because it's... it's small Perhaps. Grouping. I suspect more to the point along those lines is these were well-known cities and therefore well-known churches. So, you know, everybody's going to say, oh, he's, he said that to Ephesus. Ephesus, by the way, was like the uh, Asian Jerusalem. I mean, it was the seat of the only apostle left. Um, I personally doubt the first only because, I don't think the Romans cared, because the Romans saw this as just nutty Jewish stuff, <laughs> seriously. Yeah. You, when you read, and we've all, if you've read the, the passages of the Revelation that are so highly symbolic, nutty Jewish stuff comes pretty easy to understand from a, from a secular or a pagan perspective. So to the Romans, it was like, man, this guy's probably cracked under the pressure of the exile, so who cares what he says? But that ain't the way it was. So he says to the seven churches, John, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Notice how he says, by the way, it's not just the heavenly kingdom or the future king. He is the ruler of the kings of the earth. He has that power even then, and that was important for them to hear. But because it was tucked into nutty Jewish stuff, the Romans basically didn't care. Now, by the, and and one other thing, and I know I'm 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 becoming a little pedantic, but this really is important. Jesus Christ, what does that mean? You're whispering. Jesus. We might say, the Christ, which he does say in other places. Um, so you're coming much closer to it. The Christ is a title. It is not a name. <laughs> so, you know, it's not his last name. Um, Jesus was absolutely his name, but if he had a last name, it would have been Nazareth because they tend to make last names. Either you're the son of someone or you're from somewhere. Some, somewhere. So, Jesus of Nazareth is how he was called, right? But the Christ, or in this case, Christ, it's an anarthrous noun. Does anybody who was in the Greek class remember what that means? What? Well, the noun means the anointed one, but the anarthrous part. So hold that thought, we'll come back to it. No. Anarthrous means no article. So what is it? it Well Messiah is simply the Jewish word for Christ. The English word being anointed. But no, that's not what I'm fishing for. What about that whole article thing? Why isn't it Jesus the Christ? Well he would still be Jesus then the Christ, I mean that would be even more the Christ. in the Greek language, when they did not use an article, because the article was used routinely just for example as with Spanish, it's not Angeles, it's Los Angeles, right? So it, when when the article is not used in the Greek language, it's for a reason, and it, the reason is not to say A, because that is an article, they didn't have one that says A in Greek, that's what we do. but. People who say that are reading American into Greek. That doesn't work. Or English into Greek. No, an arthris or no article meant it is the substance or quality being emphasized. So Jesus, whose nature, whose quality, whose substance is Messiah. And Messiah being, the, the, again, the Hebrew or the Jewish word. Christ, Christos, the Greek word. And it is not translated. And that's one of the weird things about the Bible is we never translate that word. Because if it was translated, it would be Jesus anointed, just as you said, or chosen, which is why one was anointed. The Messiah was somebody looked for for millennia by the Jews and somebody who the prophets had said is coming. Jesus isn't just the Messiah. His very nature is chosen one of God because of who he is. So I mean, it's, it's, it, it just hikes it up a level beyond what we would normally say as the Christ. Um, because I said it's a title, and when you say it's the Christ, it is. Now it's a description. It is a character trait. Jesus, Messiah. Well, yeah, and in the Old Testament, what they meant was Savior, Messiah, because that's what Jesus means, Um, but on the other hand, remember how Jesus came to be named Jesus, because the Holy Spirit didn't leave that to to accident, because this tradition is there, so His very name is Savior, and yes, then He's Messiah. Messiah. is how the Hebrews, even today, I believe, would pronounce that word. So Messiah is like Jose, for A- J-O-S-E. You all have Spanish friends named Jose? There's San Jose up north near the Bay Area. That's the English way of saying something. We, we do this weird thing with these translations. is we, Even when we're using the foreign words, we still say them the way we're going to say them. Oh, well. Inconsistency. Okay, so he is, he is Christ. So um, it is from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus, Messiah, the faithful witness, firstborn of the dead, ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. And he has made us to be a kingdom priest to his God and Father. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever, And then amen, what does that mean? Let it be so. so. And it, it is a rallying cry. When everybody else reads it, they read amen, Lord. And then literally are going to pray, Lord, make that so. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be, again, amen. Amen. By the way, why is, is anybody else reading New American Standard? Why is that in Capus? Because it's an Old Testament quote. So if you look up the footnote, you'll find where it's from. It's in Daniel. And uh, again, this is a, a Jewish apostle writing to a group of people who were either Jewish Christians or, the majority of them, Gentile Christians who had been influenced by the Old Testament. So they got that. Okay. And then he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and is to come, the Almighty. He now makes this statement about himself. And he says, this is who I am. Um, That obviously has become a phrase that is used, well, actually, the Alpha and the Omega, what, what, is, what is that? If you were going to translate that into conceptual English, meaning the, the, the equivalent of that in English, what, it would, what would it be? The A to the Z, the A and the Z, and of course everything in between, I'm the first and the last, because Alpha, first letter of the Greek alphabet, Omega, the last letter, and who is, who was, who is to come which is a description of eternity. It is a claim to deity. And then he says, the Almighty. It is a word that means omnipotent. It does not mean stronger than others. It means you can't be stronger. So everything he's saying there is a, a clear claim to deity. Then, it, it and again, you, you get the... Um, labeling of the new american standard the patmos vision john explains i john your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom uh, and kingdom and perseverance which are in jesus was on the island called patmos because of the word of god and the testimony of jesus i was in the spirit on the lord's day and i heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man. And there's a footnote there. Do you guys have a footnote? What does a footnote say? or the son of man okay and and what does that tell you yeah. now the interesting thing is this is also without article so i would argue that the son of man is not a valid translation it is an americanism but it's not what's being said because The Son of Man misses what's being said. Uh, Son of Man, by the way, is a title. It was Jesus' favorite title for himself, but it is a title that dates back in use to the Old Testament. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and the reason is, why would Daniel be quoted a lot in this in this book? Yeah, about half of it is apocalyptic literature, so it fits very easily. Okay so um, i'm going to repeat verse 13 in the middle of the lampstands i saw one like son of man clothed in a robe reaching to his feet and girded across his chest with a golden sash his head and his hair were white like white wool like snow and his eyes were like a flame of fire color and imagery are also mainstays of apocalyptic so even this you're hearing this apocalyptic type of thing but it's a code. For example, white hair means to us what? Yeah, age. What would white hair mean to them, do you suppose? No. Now, forgive me for being quite so that's there, but you see, what we just did is we read ourselves back to them. What is another thing that white connotes? Purity. OK? Now, there are places where white would be used of age, but it's generally going to be stated as such. Here, purity is the big deal. And so, you know, this flowing hair and the robes, they're all like that. It's, it's because of purity. But, by the way, like a flame of fire, fire is also a symbol of purity. Because guess what fire does? It burns up goo. Impure things tend to get burned up in fire, it purifies, rather painfully if it happens to be you, but nevertheless it purifies. The smelting process is to purify metal through fire, and the word for that is the word used for purify in about half of the times it appears in the New Testament, so it was a big concept. His head and his hair were light, like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, when it has been made to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of, of many waters, think of yourself by the ocean or by a, a roaring waterfall and, you, and, and the power of that. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in its strength. So what was, what is, what, the sword part? Okay, so the sword came out of his mouth, and it was sharp and two-edged. So there's two ways of looking at that. Way number one is, he literally is standing there with his big sword coming out of his mouth. (laughs) I mean, let's be real. If we're going to say this is literal, we need to take it all literal, that's what it means. And nobody believes that, so of course we don't do that. But, what is a two-edged sword? How's it different from a one-edged sword? Okay, it cuts two ways. It's double sharp. It takes a much more skilled person. It's a much more fearsome weapon. Okay, so in the hands of a skilled warrior, a two-edged sword is far better than a one-edged sword. But there's a passage in the scripture that talks about the word itself as a two-edged sword. Pardon? Well, it is truth. I don't know that that, that doesn't encapsulize the whole thing. But it is certainly considered truth. But it says it is able to separate even between bone and marrow. Which, by the way, there's needles over here at Kramer Kaiser that will do the same thing, I can tell you from personal experience. <laughs> but that's not the same. Um, for them, that meant the ability to, uh, to be very wise, to be very discerning, to, to even to be able to judge and understand, to fully grasp, fully understand. So it's a symbol of a couple of things. The sword is what is a symbol in scripture, the sword, the word, OK? But a two-edged sword, the, the connotation of that is to raise it to a higher level, to be able to use it in a way that perhaps we can't. Um, Because he is skilled in that. Because he is not reading and learning the word. He is the word. Because remember the word, word, is logos. And with a capital, Lambda, that very concept of logos, ironically also a translation of logos, concept, that was what they called Jesus. So he is the word. He's not just somebody who knows the word. The word comes from him. Okay. Verse 17. When I saw him, I love this. When I saw him, I had a list of questions, and I brought them to him, and I said, Lord, I've always wanted to ask you. I just, I just can't grasp that. And I used to say that. I mean, years and years, I had a literal list. <laughs> it's like, Lord, I'm going to ask you all this. No, you're not. John, by the way, what was his relationship with Jesus? His best friend, the beloved disciple. He's the guy writing this. What does he do? When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me, saying, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one and I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. Okay. Let's stop for a second there. This is a beautiful picture. This is Jesus, one of Jesus' best friends, but he ain't cocky about this because he is his best friend. Jesus himself said that by the way, I call you friends. But John recognized who this is, who his friend is, and he did what I suspect is the only appropriate thing. He hit the dirt. And Jesus says, Don't be afraid. Because John was in the presence of something extremely familiar to him. You know, we talk about, no, Jesus is my friend. And I, and I believe that he is. He, he is. He's the one who has seen me through amazing things. But John knew him way more concretely than I did. And he hit the dirt. So guess what we're going to do? Yeah, we're going to hit the dirt. Forget your list, folk. You ain't going to take it with you. And when you get there, you ain't going to care. So Jesus says to John, I'm the living one. I was dead, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. John saw him alive. But Jesus is saying this not just to John, but to everybody. I have the keys of death and of Hades. What is Hades? The bad uh, sort of. the The Greeks um, had that concept, and we translated <coughs> hell sometimes. But our our concept of hell is it is only for those who have been judged and condemned right um yeah because purgatory is not for those judged and condemned it's if you're judged, you don't get to go to purgatory purgatory is like a way station to heaven Um, it is the land of the dead pure and simple the the Hebrew Sheol. see they they didn't have a very advanced theology of the afterlife for the simple reason that God hadn't told them. They believed, or most of them, the, the Sadducees didn't believe in an afterlife, but most of them believed, okay, there's, there's something after, we don't know what it is. But the Greeks had this concept of everybody goes to Hades, and it was a shadowy place. It was not a place you want to go, because of course death is a place of, of shadow and darkness says all the people who've never experienced it. I mean, it it is. It's an attempt to describe what happens to us by those of us who have no idea. That's Hades. But it was co-opted to not just mean the place of the dead, but to mean hell, to mean the judgment. Jesus says, I have the keys. The keys means I have authority. The person who carried the keys was either the owner or the steward of the owner and it was a symbol of authority. I get to decide if this gets locked or unlocked. I get to decide who goes in because I have the keys, you don't. So for him to have the keys to death means he has authority over death. And for him to have the keys to Hades means he has authority over Hades. So in essence to these, and many of them were gentile Christians. Those of you who grew up with this tradition of Hades, don't worry about it. I have authority over that. He's he's making a very clear claim. Okay. Therefore, write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, a mystery is what? Have you been listening? Um, actually something has been revealed, but not everybody knows it, right? So remember, we have the answer. It's been revealed, but it's a mystery because they don't know it yet. If everybody knows it, it's not a mystery anymore. It's simply open knowledge. And so the the Greek mystery religion, the keeper of the secrets, the mistos, would tell you because you got to be in. But it's still a mystery because they don't know. Well, he refers to this mystery because there's those who know and, by the way, I'm about to tell you, he says, but many don't understand this. And I would argue that's probably still true today, even though he tells them right here. The mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the stars are the angels of the seven churches. The word angel means messenger. Does every church have one messenger only? but definitely one. What's the right answer to that question? Yeah, how would I know? (laughs) This is not a systematic theology of angelology in the church. It is simply a statement that he's making here. There are messengers to these churches or from these churches. So some would say these are the elders or a representative of the elders. Many would say no it's the pastor which is an anachronism because there was no such thing as the pastor in this time they literally had no concept if you said who's the pastor they wouldn't know what in the world you're talking about but if you said who are your pastors or your shepherds they would point to the elders so it could have been one of them or it could have been what we know as a supernatural creature the word angel simply means messenger so it can be either or both so that's what the the lamps or the stars are the no the yeah the seven stars and the seven lampstands are the seven churches so we're going to see see that continue that uh, imagery into the next two chapters next week we're only going to look at seven verses but just so that no one thinks i did not create enough fun for you That 7 Verses has a three-page study guide. And by the way, I contained myself to keep it at three pages. I really did, because what he says to these churches is so powerful that easily that could have been way more. Okay, any questions before we adjourn for the evening and move on to next week? Okay.